I was here in the uh, morning hour, and we had two sermons on the church. And I'd like to bring one tonight to make it three for the day. I have a, a message I want to bring you on why some churches die. Why some churches die. Now, that's a sad commentary, and it's a negative commentary. And I never have enjoyed preaching a negative sermon a great deal. I'd much rather approach any subject that I deal with from the positive angle. I think it's more profitable to me. I think it's more profitable to my congregation if I can approach it from a positive angle. There's a lot of good things that I can say about the church. But my subject is a reality. And though it may be negative, and though it may be unpleasant, and I'd rather not face up to it, the fact remains that some churches in our day are indeed diminishing and are indeed dying. Now, why is that the case and the fact of the matter? Why do some churches die? I had a young man come to me the other day, and by the way, let me read a verse, and I'll tell you about the young man in just a moment. Uh, in Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse number uh, 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, but this is a reference to our Lord Jesus, for by him are all things created, by the word of his power, Hebrews 1, all things are created that are in heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible. Now, there's a good text for you to remember. Not everything in the world is visible. There are some invisible things that were created uh, that are in this world as much so as the visible. Uh, for example, oxygen that you breathe in and out of your nostrils every time you take a breath. You'll not, you'll not be able to see that oxygen, but it's here nonetheless. And you and I have been breathing that God-given uh, uh, oxygen into our lungs. And that uh, oxygen keeps our lungs and brains and eyes uh, functioning in the proper way. And without that oxygen, matters not how much food you may have or how much health you might enjoy, without that oxygen, you're going to die if you don't get it real soon. It's an invisible thing that God has made. If we could close this tabernacle up and make a vacuum on the inside, close it up tight, and then withdraw all the air out of it that we possibly could, just take every bit of it out that we possibly could. I don't know how many cubic inches of air or cubic feet of air might be withdrawn from this tabernacle, and we may withdraw all the air in this tabernacle and, and put it in a great tank or put it in a bag out here somewhere and uh, transfer it from this place to the other. And after you've taken all the air out of this tabernacle and put it in some other container, you could not see one single iota of it. It's all been withdrawn, and it's all a very essential component, a life-sustaining component. But it's an invisible thing that God has created, but it's nonetheless real. Now, there are many invisible things in the world. The matter of faith is invisible. A man says there's no such thing as faith. Uh, you admit your simplicity and your folly. There is such a thing as faith. Uh, the matter of heaven, for example, we've never seen heaven. But we believe there is to be a heaven. And on down the line, there are many invisible things in this world as well as the visible. And all were created by him and for him, whether they be thrones or whether they be dominions or principalities or powers. All things are created by him and for him. Everything in this world created by the Lord Jesus and to his glory. He is before all things. The ancient I am. The ancient of days our Lord is. 
He is before all things. He was before the oceans were made and the boundary placed around the waters. He was before the mountains were scooped up and the valleys were made, you see. He was before the first man, Adam, our Lord was. He is before all things and by him all things are held together. Or by him all things consist. And were it not for his power, the whole universe would explode. There'd be no way in the world to keep the universe in order except by the might of his power. By him all things consist. He spoke the worlds into existence, and he by his power uh, keeps the world like it is down through all the years and shall continue to keep the world exactly as it is. Now you need not fret tonight about the world uh, getting out of orbit, the earth planet. Are the earth planet not functioning like it ought to? It will. And the reason I'm sure that this earth will function is because all things consist by him. And when Jesus dies, or the Almighty dies, and we better watch out, this earth may go into a, 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 a spasm. But as long as Jesus is alive, this earth planet will move on in its orbit, just like it always has. You don't have to worry about that at all. By him all things consist. Now in verse 18, he is the head of the body. Nobody would object to that, would you? And then we're clearly announced and proclaimed, it's clearly proclaimed in the next clause, that the body is the church, who is the beginning of, of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Jesus, might have the preeminence. And I say amen. He's worthy of the preeminence. I give him the preeminence. And all of we would say amen. He ought to have the preeminence. But he is the head of the, of the body. And the body is the church. The most precious institution in all the earth is the church of the living God. It's the only eternal organism. The only organism in the earth that came from heaven. And the only one going back to heaven, by the way. And the church will go back to heaven as a unit with not one single part of it lost. Not one. It'll go back to heaven one day complete and perfected. And I read that in Colossians 1 as well. The Lord's working the church over, making the church today into exactly the image he planned for it from the foundation of the world. Now I said a moment ago that there were many great things and good things about the church in our day that are worthy of our note that I could well preach from tonight from a positive angle. I had the young man come to me the other day, and he said, Now, Pastor, don't you believe that the church has lost its power? Now, he said that to me, and announced that to me, as if he was expecting uh, an affirmative answer. Don't you believe, Pastor, that the church has lost its power? And I said, No, I don't believe that at all. And I insisted to that young man that the church today has not lost its power. Now, I mean, when I say the church, I mean the body. I don't mean one single uh, denomination or one single unit or some local church. I don't mean that. But I mean the church, the eternal church, the overall church of our Lord uh, has not lost its power. Now, that's not to say that it has all the power that it ought to have. And potentially the church could enjoy. But to say the church has lost its power uh, would not be proper, nor would it be scripturally correct. 
nor could you understand certain things from the positive side that are true about the church. Has it occurred to you that right now, 1980 and today is, uh, is August the 6th, right? 1980. Right now! There are more independent local Baptist congregations in the world than there has ever been since the day of Right now, August 6th, 1980, there are more evangelical Baptists, fundamental premillennial missionaries on foreign fields and upon home fields as well than there has ever been since the day of Right now, August 6, 1980, there are more young preachers training for the ministry in schools like you have here at Maranatha and schools like Bob Jones University and schools like Tennessee Devil. There are more Baptist young men now training for the ministry than at any other one time since the day of Pentecost. Well, if those things are so, and those things are, uh, then it would not be right to say that the church, as a blanket statement, has lost its power. Not by any means. The church is thriving and doing well uh, in our day. We're not converting the world. I heard a man say over the radio one day as I rode the highway, uh, he said, uh, we plan to win our city to God. And we're working at winning our city to God. Well, I was in my car listening, and I said to myself, you might not ought to have said that. Because I doubt if you'll ever get that city one to God. I know where that city is, and I preached in that city. I don't know much about it as he does, because he lives there. But I know enough about it to know that he's not going to win it to God. And, but he didn't stop there. He said, well, we'll get that done. We're going to win out county to God. And I said, my, that's dangerous. You might not ought to have said that. But he didn't stop there. He said, we get that done, we're going to take our state for God. I said, that's foolish. That's folly. You're wasting your breath. You're confusing people. He didn't stop there. He said, when we get that done, we shall take America for God. I said, foolish man. No, that's not it. I don't think God promises that for the local church. I have not won Greenville to God. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. did not win Greenville to God. Dr. Oliver Green both of whose, whose body rest in the side in Greenville did not win Greenville to God. And as far as I can tell, Greenville is as far away from God tonight as 41 years ago when I began preaching. And I've never passed it except in Greenville County, three churches in that county in these years. And I haven't won Greenville to God. I don't think it's my charge. I don't think it's potentially possible for me to win Greenville to God. And there has never been one city Totally one to God in all the churches in Texas. As far as I know, and I've studied history rather extensively, and I have not found one such city, not even the city of Rome, where the Vatican is, has been one to God. They're more communist in the city of Rome than in New York City in our country, or in the city of Washington. And they are not, they are not Christian. Though the Vatican is in Rome, they're long ways for being Christian both in Rome and the Vatican, by the way. No. Now, the Bible doesn't know of any hope that we're going to win the city to God that we live in, nor the state we live in, nor America to God. But there's never been as much fervent, primal, stretchable evangelism going on in the world, in all the church history, as right there. 
me, that's a positive thing, a wonderful thing that I've just said to you, and I'm glad. When I was called to preach 41 years ago, the church that I went out from, as far as I know, did not even have a telephone. They didn't have a church secretary. They had no assistance. They did not have a full-time music man. Nobody ever heard of a full-time youth director. There were no summer camps for the young people to go to. Just a local church. We had 300 Sunday school of that church in those days. Today it has a lot less than that, maybe 200. But in those days, they had 300 Sunday school, but we had no organization, just a pastor. And that was it. The deacons cleaned the church, built the fires in the winter time, and they had no staff, no house-to-house visitation. I never heard of visitation program. Never heard of anything like that in my life as a young man. Now, we had Sunday school and preaching, and BYPU and prayer meeting and, uh, and RAs and GAs, a lot of other things. We had those things. But in organizations as we enjoy in our day, we just didn't have it at that church like you have it here at Maranatha. And I, I'm not decrying your organization. I think you need every staff member you have. I think you need your office. I think you need your telephone. I think you need records. I think you need organization. I think you need youth camps. I think you need your radio station. Who ever heard of a church in that day having a radio station? I never dreamed that an America local church or an institute could own and operate a radio station like you all do. We've come a long way. The local church in America has come a long way. And many of these things that I'm talking about are good and noble and positive. And that we can be encouraged about and shout about and be thankful for in a great way. When Tabernacle was born, the pastor talked about visiting our church in 1957. The church was born five years earlier in 1952. And when you came to Greenville in 1957, I didn't even have a phone in that church. I pastored that church for eight years without a telephone. Oh, what bliss. Uh, when you came to that church in 1957, I didn't have one staff member, not even a secretary. I mean, I did all that had to be done. We had a custodian. Had had a custodian, I guess I'd have been doing that. But I did everything else that had to be done, along with the deacons helping me out along the way. We've come a long way. Today we have 60 people on the payroll and the, and the schools going on. And we've come a long way, you believe me, since then. And I wouldn't go back to those days anything in the world. I think we're better equipped to do a job for God now than we've ever been. We have better buildings. We have better organization. We have better offerings. We have better trained personnel. And I wouldn't dare go back to 1957 under no circumstances. And yet back in those days, we were more people of God than we are now. I was baptized in more converts then than I am now. Now, I don't know that I can explain that, but that's just a matter of record and a matter of fact. Uh, we didn't baptize Half has been the last year, as we did in 1957, when you came to us at Vista uh, Church then. But we're working at it fervently, more fervently, every year that goes by. And we're witnessing more every year that goes by. Uh, our mission door. Thank God for the mission door. Who would have dreamed? You listen to me for a moment. I'm talking about the positive, and I'm trying to give you the positive to fix you up for the negative. I'm going to give you in a moment. But who would have dreamed that uh, 25 years ago, uh, 
29 years ago now, when I became an independent, that in these 29 years, I would see, and your pastor would see, and you would see, the rapid, spontaneous, phenomenal, miraculous explosion and growth of independent Baptist churches with our mission thrust unequal by anything since the day of Pentecost. When I left the convention, and I was 12 years in the Southern Baptist Convention from 1940 up to 52, when I left the convention in 1952, the Southern Baptist Convention with 33,000 churches had then 2,200 missionaries on the field. 2,200. I mean, that was it. 2,200 missionaries, 33,000 churches. Now, if you divide 2,200 into 33,000, you will come up with a startling figure as to how many churches it took to put one missionary on the field with Southern Baptists. And their plight in 1980 is not one whit better. In 29 years, from 1952 up until 1980, Southern Baptists have increased their mission board and their mission work by 500 missionaries. And they now have 2,700 missionaries scattered around the world. You divide 2,700 into 33,000, and you've got just about the same number of churches it takes to put one missionary on the field that it took. 29 years ago. Now that's a tragedy. And that's a scourge. That's a slander. That's a, that's a hopeless uh, condition. And one of the reasons that I'm independent tonight is because of this figure that I'm giving to you. But in the same 29 years, you and I have watched independent churches be born within the shadow of the staples of Southern Baptist churches. And in America, there are 10,000 independent churches, and those 10,000 churches tonight have more than 5,000 missionaries on foreign fields around the world. In 25 years, we've caught up with Southern Baptists and passed them double, double the number of their missionaries. We have twice as many missionaries on the field as the Southern Baptist Convention and have only 10,000 churches. Now, that's not a great deal to crow about, we ought to have 10,000 missionaries. We only have 5,000 independent Baptists. But at least it only takes two churches to put one missionary on the field with the independents. When it takes about 25 churches for Southern Baptists to put one missionary on the field. So a lot of good positive things we could say about the church in our day. And so I did not agree with the young man who said that the church had lost its power. Some churches, yes. But a blanket statement to that effect would not be correct. I think the church, the local church, in my day is more efficient and more aggressive and more thorough in what it does than the church has ever been since the day of Pentecost. Now, we're not winning the world, but you just remember that nowhere in the Bible does God say we are supposed to. Nowhere. But it's our job to snatch brands out of the burning and form the bride by the grace of God for his name's sake. And that's being done and shall continue to be done. Now, while all of these positive things that I've said are so, now let's be uh, real enough to watch the negative side for a moment. While you and I, you are a member of a thriving, aggressive, well-organized, well-staffed local church, Maranatha. And I'm proud that you are. But while you're a member of a visiting, uh, evangelistic, and missionary, 
and fervent and singing and shouting church. There's a lot of churches around about you uh, about which I could not say that. Nor could you say that. There are a lot of Baptist people in your county who are tied in with churches that are diminishing and that are cold and barren and indifferent and without any zeal for God. Now why do some churches die? I don't know that any church ought to die. But I don't know of anything more sad than a vacated church building. You talk about a cemetery, about as sad as a cemetery is an empty church building. I was over in North Carolina at a meeting a few years back, and the pastor said, I want to carry you out and show you a church that's been forsaken. He carried me out to the countryside, and there was a church on the side of the road in, in a fairly good state of repair, but deserted. And we walked into that church, and it had not been used for a long, long time. The dust covered the pews, and the piano, I was not in tune. And some of the window panes were broken out, and the steps had rotted away. And the pastor told me the story of one time a thriving congregation of people. And now it's deserted. Nobody comes. Nobody uh, plays the piano. Nobody preaches a sermon. A deserted church building. Now, that's not an isolated condition. You wouldn't have to go far to find many such churches like that in Maryland and in South Carolina. In the lower part of our state, I noticed a sign up here at, uh, at Elton or, or up at Newark, one or the other, that one of the two of these cities were founded in, in, 16, uh, in 1690, I believe, 1692. Well, that's a pretty good way back. That's several, that's a hundred years before our nation was born. Well, the city of Charleston, South Carolina, where I was born nearby, was founded in 1670, a little earlier than the city of New York or Elvin. And the people that, that uh, settled in the colonies in the Carolinas and Virginia and uh, Maryland and some of the other colonies in Georgia uh, came over here with land grants from the King of England. And they were Episcopalians. They were wealthy English people. They were the Anglo-Saxon stock. They came over here in the days of the colonies. And they had in their hand land grants of thousands of acres of land all over the colonies from the king of England. And they brought with them, of course, the Episcopalian church. And all over the lower part of South Carolina, there are one-room Episcopalian churches that still stand until this day, built back in the days of the colonies. And in the early days of the colonies, there were no Baptists to speak of in the colonies. They came later with a second wave of immigrants, at which time your people and my people, for the most part, came to these shores uh, in the 1700s. But those uh, early settlers, those Episcopalians, built churches all over South Carolina, and many, that is the coastal area, and many of those tonight are deserted and forsaken and broken down, and that's sad. Of course, I don't believe in a misplayed religion, but their churches have been deserted and abandoned and diminished. And you'll find some Baptists that have done the same thing, walked away, and the churches have died. Why does that happen? Whether it's an Episcopalian church, or in particular, if it's a Baptist church, why does a tragedy like that happen? And I've seen some other Baptist churches, at least the one that I've just told you, abandoned and forsaken and rotting down. My wife and I made a trip to Pensacola a few months ago, a few weeks ago. I preached in the Pensacola Christian College there for three days. 
and we drove through the country from uh, from Auburn, Alabama, across the country, down through Andalusia, down into Pensacola on US 29. And I was stricken by the number of small churches the side of the road. Not not great, beautiful uh, complexes, but small one-room churches out of block or maybe out of lumber. And, and I was stricken by the number of those that seemed to be unpainted and unkept and the weeds were going up. And I said to my wife time and again, looks like that church has been abandoned. Now, they were not Episcopalians. No. No, they, they were probably Baptists or some of them maybe Methodists. And I saw a number of them, must have been 15 or 20 churches of forsaken, many of them no doubt colored churches, but forsaken churches nonetheless there in Alabama. Now, why does that happen? Whether it's in Alabama or Maryland or South Carolina, why does some churches die? First, I've mentioned, because of worldly-minded preachers who do not have at heart the work of the gospel. Far too many preachers in our day are time servers and men pleasers. And they're not interested in putting first things first in their lives. And I lay at the feet of pastors the major responsibility of churches dying. I don't think I'd be fair to pastors to say that all the responsibilities are from them. But a great part of the responsibility of dying churches is to be laid at the feet of pastors. Southern Baptists in my country are diminishing. Last year, the Southern Baptist Convention, for the first time in their history, and they were born in 1845 in Augusta, Georgia. For the first time since 1845, Southern Baptists reported a decline in the number of cooperating churches. That means that they have less churches now than they had five years ago. And I find that Baptist churches all over my country, Southern Baptists, are diminishing. The first Baptist church of my city at one time was the largest Sunday school church in our state. Every week having 1,500 Sunday schools. In recent years, they have not reached the 1,000 mark. Dr. Gene Crane, a famous Baptist, Southern Baptist, pastor at Penland Street Baptist Church in his lifetime, and every Sunday run 12, 1,300 Sunday schools. Last year, I noticed the report said they averaged uh, 599. From fifteen hundred, uh, from twelve hundred down to five ninety nine today. In my home church, when I went out, was running three hundred to Sunday school. Now they have a good Sunday two hundred, and that's the pattern all over South Carolina among Southern Baptist churches. Now much of that is to be laid at the feet of worldly preachers, compromising preachers, preachers that don't do not preach, who serve and draw their pay. And yet do not preach as they ought to preach. Now, I love pastors and I'm poor preachers. I am a preacher and have been a long time. And I have no objection to the ministry. I'm glad God called me to be a preacher. But there's far too many preachers that have too many other things on their minds. And they're engaged in far too many other things to do the work of the ministry in their local church like they ought. Far too many of them spend too much time fishing. Now, I love fish. I love to eat them. But I do no fishing. Far too many of them spend too much time hunting bear and fox and coons. Far too many of them spend too much time on a golf course. 
I was, I was with a pastor over the, over the other day on Alabama uh, who is a pro, a Baptist pastor who has a job of a golf pro on a professional golf course in that city. And he has to report to work every day as a pro. He's a real golfer. And so he's making some money on the side as a golf pro teaching other people how to play, how to play golf. Well, I don't know. I don't see how a man can reconcile that. If I had enough time on my hands to teach people how to play golf, I think I'd get me a gospel tent and put it up with these fellows over here in yours. If I had that much time, I think I'd find me something else to do rather than teach someone how to play golf. And churches all over the land have that kind of preacher that uh, is time servers and men pleasers and who don't have the work of God up in their heart like they ought to have. And I think that's one of the reasons churches are diminishing. Compromising, worldly preachers that don't preach like they ought to preach. And then another reason is because of spiritless singing. I believe preaching and singing go hand to hand together like twins. The right kind of preaching and the right kind of singing is good for a church. But the wrong kind of preaching and the wrong kind of singing will kill a church. This dead ritualistic watching choir deal, rope choir deal, anthem singing deal, you know. And when they sing, you don't know when they finish any more what they've sung than you when they started. Forms of godliness to deny the power thereof. I like the informal way of Maranatha choir. Coming up to the choir and singing your songs with joy. And then go on and sit down and listen to the man preach. This business of marching out, uh, we don't do that at Tabernacle. Assembling behind the choir, and at the stroke upon the organ, they solemnly walk out and take their places in the choir law. And then they sing, God is in his holy temple, be silent. They go through some kind of an anthem, and, and long since they've abandoned songs like there is a fountain here with blood drawn from a man And they've long since gotten over any kind of spiritual sin. The tabernacle, we'll criticize more at that point than any other one point that I can think of. Now, I wouldn't say that our church sings steps back to music altogether. And we don't. I wouldn't want my church's pastor to sing nothing but steps back to music. Uh, there's nothing in the world more wonderful to me than there is a fountain filled with blood. Or some of the old hymns of the church, I love them. And I wouldn't pastor a church that did not sing, There is a fountain filled with blood. Or rescue the perishing. Or in the sweet by and by. Or when we all get to heaven. I just wouldn't pastor a church that wouldn't sing that kind of song. But at the same time, we need the spiritual songs mixed with them. They, they say over the go that we sing the foot-padding kind. Well, I've got no objection to a foot-padding song. If you wanted to, you could waltz to Amazing Grace. But I don't go to church to waltz. I go to church to sing Amazing Grace. I don't go to church to pat my foot. I go to church to hear a song. And patting my foot's just incidental. I was at a meeting the other day. My wife was uh, seated there in the meeting, too. And I was doing the preaching, and the young lady playing the piano. Oh, she was a master. I mean, she was a master. She did the, uh, one of the pastors told me that she had graduated from Bob Jones uh, with a major in music. 
and I could tell. I, I'm not, I'm not a music man, but I know music when I hear it. And I could tell that girl had a, had a touch of a master. And she sat on that piano stool and played that piano so beautifully every night, so beautifully. But you know, I noticed she kept rhythm with her head. She just kept doing this, playing. She kept doing that with her head. She just kept bobbing her head and uh, keeping rhythm with her head. And I, I, I whispered to my wife now, I said, now, if she can keep rhythm with her head, I can keep rhythm with my foot. And she's a music major. And she was keeping rhythm with her head. Why can't I, and I don't know anything about music, keep rhythm with my foot. So I said to my wife, as long as she bobs her head, I'm going to pat my foot. Some people straighter than that to swallow a camel. And I, I'm not reflecting on that girl. She was a master. She was, he knew how to do it. But I'm just simply saying, she was keeping rhythm with her head, beating time with her head. You've seen people play piano. Now, I have no objection to that. Your pianist does some of that, and I like it. But don't fuss at me if, if I play a good number on piano if I want to pat my foot. Or clap my hand. Sometimes the same good tone you tap and I go, has a good rhythm to it. I clap my hands uh, in rhythm with the tune. Nothing wrong with that. Oh, that's beneath my dignity. That's exactly what I'm trying to show you. And when you get too dignified to sing a spiritual song and enjoy it, you're on the way to the cemetery. You're going to die. You're going to kill your church. Right. Right. I think that one of the problems with Southern Baptists is the Broadmoor Himmel. If somehow Southern Baptists could get rid of that Broadmoor Himmel and get them an All-American Himmel, and we use the All-American Himmel to tabernacle, I don't know what you all use. You all use that, brother? That's a good book. Uh, I wish the All-American had more of the spiritual songs in it, but at least it has mansion over the hilltop and more to be wonderful there and victory in Jesus. Uh, that Broadmoor has none of those. We stopped using Broadmoor Himmel when we were just a child in the church of heaven. Got rid of that thing as soon as I saw the difference between a spiritual song and a hymn. I got rid of that Broadmoor Himmel because it didn't have any spiritual songs in it. And I think all the same spiritual songs. Right. And so I say to you that their own kind of singing will kill a church. I have no objection to uh, trained singers. That young lady that sang a while ago, she's wonderful. She's had training. Somebody taught her some things, and you can tell it very evidently. Brother Bird's had some uh, training. You tell that. You have had some training, brother. You don't hang around Tennessee Devil without training music, I'll guarantee. I know that school too well. Now, I've had none. I mean none. I mean none. That deacon of my church one time said that when he was in school, uh, he thought he'd go out for the bleed club, and he went in to try for the bleed club, and the and the teacher said, "Now, son, you go out and play baseball." And that's why the teacher would say to me, "You go out and play baseball." I I couldn't sing in the bleed club, but I love trained singers. We have one or two fellows in town, and they go uh, that had same training that Bob Jones, that this young lady, had with the piano. And one of them led the singing in the tabernacle tonight, and they're good singers, sing good songs, and I love to hear that kind of music. Yeah, but I don't mind a boy coming up to the platform with a guitar over his shoulder, and he'll get that guitar down and pick, 
and saying, I've just heard from heaven this one thing I know. My sins are all forgiven. They're washed as white as snow. And some churches, when they sing that kind of song, they say, I wish they'd stop that. I'd be embarrassed if be out. I don't want Tabernacle to ever get to the place where a boy could sing a good hymn and pick a guitar with it. Amen. You mean, that's right. What's wrong with the guitar? The piano's got more strings on it than a guitar. Why don't you throw it out? The piano's a hypocrite. It covers the strings up. But it's a stringed instrument just the same. <laughs> if you're going to play the piano, why not let a man pick a guitar? Same principle. Same principle. The trouble is some of you folk have been taught that that's not dignified. So. Yeah, you've been to one of these schools where they say, don't ever let anybody pick guitar. Yeah. We don't tell them that. It's having like If you want to sing a song and use the guitar to play the accompaniment, I have no objections. As long as the song is about Jesus. I don't care. We have a, a trio of singers up in the mountains. You ought to get them some of your time sometimes, brother. They're called the Sharp family. A man and his two daughters. And they're, they're as countrified as I am. And just down-to-earth people. I mean, just just down-to-earth people. I mean, down-to-earth people. That old brother, about my age, and, and two of his daughters, and one of his daughters is semi-afflicted. But uh, he picks a guitar, and he picks it uh, in that peculiar Tennessee fashion. Uh, that's a little bit different from South Carolina fashion. I don't pick guitar at all. But uh, those fellows in Tennessee, they pick it. They pick it right. Pick out a melody. And uh, down in South Carolina, they just strum it. But that fellow can pick it and read it, play it. And he and his two daughters come to town like there once in a while, and they sing for us. And I see my dignified people slip down in the seats, you know. They'd rather I wouldn't have them. But to tell you the truth, I have them for pure meanness to, to aggravate them. I'm not about to let take over. I'll sing it and make it sophisticated. I'll send for the Sharp family. <laughs> Amen! Bob the head. And uh, keep the rhythm with the head. And I, I, I whispered to my wife now. I said, now, if she can keep rhythm with her head, I can keep rhythm with my foot. And she's a music major! And she was keeping rhythm with her head. Why can't I? And I don't know anything about music. Keep rhythm on my foot. So I said to my wife, as long as she bobs her head, I'm going to pat my foot. Some people straighter than that to swallow a camel. And I, I'm not reflecting on that girl. She was a master. She was. She knew how to do it. But I'm just simply saying, she was keeping rhythm with her head, beating time with her head. You've seen people play this. I have no objection to that. Your pianist does some of that, and I like it. But don't question me if I play a good number on the piano if I want to pass my foot. Or clap my hand. Sometimes the same good song you tap and I go, has a good rhythm to it, I clap my hands uh, in rhythm with the tune. Nothing wrong with that. Well, that's beneath my dignity. That's exactly what I'm trying to show you. And when you get too dignified to sing a spiritual song and enjoy it, you're on the way to the cemetery. 
You're going to die. You're going to kill yourself. Right. Right. I think that one of the problems with Southern Baptists is the broad mohemo. If somehow Southern Baptists could get rid of that broad mohemo and get them an all-American hemo, and we use the all-American hemo to tell them, I don't know what you all use. You all use that, brother? That's a good book. Uh, I wish the all-American had more of the spiritual songs in it. But at least it has mansion over the hilltop and want to be wonderful there and victory in Jesus. Uh, that Bravo has none of those. But we stopped using Bravo Himmel when we were just a child in the church of heaven. Got rid of that thing as soon as I saw the difference between a spiritual song and a hymn. I got rid of that Bravo Himmel. Because it didn't have any spiritual songs in it. And I think we ought to sing spiritual songs. Right. And so I say to you that the wrong kind of singing will kill a church. I have no objection to uh, trained singers. That young lady sang a while ago. She's wonderful. She's had training. Somebody taught her some things. And you can tell it very evidently. Brother Bird's had some uh, training. You tell that. You have had some training, brother. You don't hang around Tennessee Devil without training music, I'll guarantee. I know that school too well. Now, I've had none. I mean none. I mean, none. The deacon of my church one time said that when he was in school, uh, he thought he'd go out for the beat club. And he went in to try for the beat club, and the and the teacher said, Now, son, you go out and play baseball. And that's why the teacher would say to me, You go out and play baseball. I, I couldn't sing in the beat club. But I love trained singers. We have one or two fellows in town, and they go, uh, That had the same training that Bob Jones that this young lady had with the piano. One of them led the singing of Tabernacle tonight. And they're good singers, sing good songs. And I love to hear that kind of music. Yeah. But I don't mind a boy coming up to the platform with a guitar over his shoulder. And he'll get that guitar down and take and sing, I've just heard from heaven this one thing I know. My sins are all forgiven. They're white as white as snow. And some churches, when they sing that kind of song, they say, I wish they'd stop that. I'd be embarrassed if you I, I don't tabernacle ever get to the place where a boy couldn't sing a good hymn and pick a guitar with it. Amen. You mean, that's right. What's wrong with the guitar? The piano's got more strings on it than a guitar. Why don't you throw it out? The piano's a hypocrite. It covers the strings up. But it's a stringed instrument just the same. <laughs> if you're going to play the piano, why not let a man pick a guitar? Same principle. Same principle. The trouble is some of you folks have been taught that that's not dignified. Yeah, you've been to one of these schools where they say, don't ever let anybody pick a guitar. Yeah. We don't tell them that. Tell them that. You want to sing a song and use the guitar? To play the accompaniment, I have no objection, as long as the song is about Jesus. I don't care. We have a, a trio of singers up in the mountains. You ought to get them to you sometimes, brother. They're called the Sharp Family, a man and his two daughters. And they're, they're as countrified as I am. And just down-to-earth people. I mean, just just down-to-earth people. I mean, down-to-earth people. That old brother, about my age, and, and two of his daughters, and one of his daughters is semi-afflicted, 
But uh, he picks a guitar and he picks it uh, in that peculiar Tennessee fashion. Uh, that's a little bit different from South Carolina fashion. I don't pick guitar at all. But uh, those fellows in Tennessee, they pick it. They pick it right. pick out a melody. And uh, down in South Carolina, they just strum it. But that fellow can pick it and really play it. And he and his two daughters come to town and once in a while. And they sing for us. And I see my dignified people slip down in the seat, you know. They'd rather I wouldn't have them. But tell the truth, I have them for pure meanness to, to, to aggravate them. I'm not about to blur take over our singing and make it sophisticated. I'll send for the Sharp family. <laughs> Amen! I don't want our people to get that started. I want our people to be flexible and free and enjoy the Sharp family. Uh, they'll never get an invitation to Bob Jones. Or they'll never get an invitation to Tennessee Temple. But they can come to town and they won't do Amen. Spiritless singing will kill a church. You get somebody in the choir that can cry every once in a while over a song. You get somebody in the choir that'll pat the foot while they sing. You get somebody in the choir that after, after a moment lift up the hand and say, Praise God. We've got a deacon in my choir. I've been singing this choir time and I go to some church in there. And every once in a while he's behind me. Every once in a while I hear him say, Praise God. I know that's old brother Furman. He'll say, Glory to God. And I say to myself, Thank you, Lord. Got a shout man in the choir. And uh, that helps out, you know. That keeps the church alive. Then, number three, some churches die because there is no separation. I'm amazed the churches want to be like other churches. Why would Maranatha want to be like the First Baptist Church at Elm? Down in South Carolina, in the Southern Baptist churches, the women folk wear pantsuits to their services. My neighbor in church, uh, the sectaries wear pantsuits in their office during the week. And the teachers at uh, day school teach with pantsuits. We don't allow that in Tabernacle. No, none of the women of our church ever wear pantsuits in our service. No staff member, no teacher wears pantsuits to teach them. We don't even allow the children to wear pantsuits, let alone teachers. We won't allow basketball teams to play another team that has uh, cheerleaders with mini skirts on. Preacher, you're a fanatic. You're getting the point. Right? No separation. Why would an independent Baptist church, fundamental Baptist church, turn loose and just let the line of separation become uh, blotted out? Why? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? No, have mercy upon you. If you do it, you die. The only thing that's going to keep Maranatha alive is a clear, positive stand for God and separation. And not everybody in Elton will appreciate it. And some of your members may highball to some of the church. They'll check out. But let them go. Don't you dare compromise. To keep one up. You'd be better off without them than to compromise to keep them. No separation from the world and the things of the world will deaden the church, will kill the church. Preachers ought to separate. Preachers ought to be clean. Preachers ought not to go to questionable places. I think no, no deacon ought to be cleaner than the pastor. 
No church member ought to be cleaner than the pastor. There are certain things that we can't do as pastors. We must be separated. And then again, neglected prayer altars will dead the church. I don't know of anything among fundamentalists that trouble me more than that one particular point. I go into fundamental churches every week I live, and I find many of them do not pray in. And that's the handwriting on the wall. That's the sign of death. Death is working when the prayer altars are neglected. I was at a church over in North Carolina, and I arrived a bit early on Thursday, and I said to the custodian, where is your prayer room? And he said, we have no prayer room. I said, well, show me a room that I can use. And he showed me a Sunday room, and I prayed. And I said while I prayed to myself, tomorrow night the pastor will be here, or the deacons will pray with me. But I went back Friday night, and nobody prayed with me. I went back to the same room, prayed alone. I said, well, maybe tomorrow night they'll be with me. Saturday night I went back to the same room and prayed, but nobody came to pray with me. I concluded nobody was praying. Nobody was praying. And that's not an isolated condition. I find that many places I go, nobody prays. And, and churches die when nobody prays. One of the reasons we have the altar of prayer tabernacle Wednesday night is to encourage as many people to at least pray one time a week. Daniel prayed three times a day. Surely we Baptists pray once a week. And so we say, come on about the altar, brethren. They come down and we buy the altar and pray. I'm afraid some of them may not do it otherwise. So we'll get it done on Wednesday night at least. And then everybody bows, children, women, everybody in the pew, they bow on their knees while we pray. And we'll spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes on our knees every Wednesday night. But you neglect the prayer altars, your church will die. No way to survive without prayer. I'm confident of that. And then silence testimony will deaden the church. Every church member is to be a witness. Every man, every woman is to go out into the community and testify on their jobs, in their homes, on the street. But far too many have silenced their testimony. They talk about politics, but they can't talk about Jesus. Talk about the weather, but they can't talk about Jesus. Now, I made up my mind that I just wouldn't talk about anything if I couldn't talk about the Lord. And if I can't talk about the Lord, then I will make myself scared. I'll leave. Find somebody with whom I can talk about the Lord. I'm not going to carry on a conversation otherwise. Silence testimonies will death the church. On the job where you work, every man on your ship ought to know what you stand for. Every man on your ship ought to know that you're a member of Maranatha Baptist Church. And ought to know what Maranatha stands for. Every woman in this building ought to let your neighbors know where you stand, what you believe. Right, amen. My daughter moved into an area then, Greenville, among uh, new sex and new homes, and she hadn't been there long until somebody knocked on her door, nice, sophisticated lady, and said, now, we're having a bridge party over here across the street, certain hour, and we'd love you to participate. And my daughter said, well, I'll tell you, I'm a member of Tabernacle Baptist Church on White Horse Road, and my daddy happens to be the pastor. That picks that up, brother. That's all she had to say. They didn't bother her anymore. Of course, she didn't go. They didn't come back anymore either. Now, you all declare your colors. You all let people know where you stand. One way or another. 
If you if you're a bit timid and shy, I get you a sign, stick it on the front door. Come on up on your door, I get you a sign about Jesus. Put it there where they can see it. I'll get a little gospel tract. I'll put it on the above of your automobile. One way or another. We ought to be witnesses. Every day, everywhere we go, witnesses for the Lord. And then again, no spirit filling will dead the church. Preachers, no power. Deacons, no power. Churches, no power. Will dead the church. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. If there's any one thing Baptist churches need, it's the power of God's spirit. And in many cases, we don't have that. And then another thing that will dead the church is no mission program. No mission program. I was with a pastor over in Chattanooga, and he said, we give nothing to missions. I couldn't believe my ears, so I said, say that again. He said, we give nothing to missions. A Baptist church. And I said, now, young man, if I were you, I'd straighten that out coming Sunday, or they'd get another pastor. I would not pastor a church and give nothing to missions. I'm convinced in my soul that no church will go any further than the mission program will allow them to go. And when you fail or refuse to give to missions, you sign your own death warrant. You die. Now you either give to missions or die. You develop a mission program or die. And I think that's one of the reasons that Southern Baptists are in the plight they're in today is because they have just a, a token mission program. And I think that's one of the reasons independent Baptists have been so flourished and so blessed is because we have a real sacrificial mission program. And every church that will give itself to mission will survive and will thrive. I heard Dr. Robinson say one time that missions is God's business and any man that will take care of God's business God will supply his needs. And I found that to be a fact. Missions is the heart sob of any local church. And any church that will give sacrifice to the mission, God will set for them an open door that no man can close. But you begin to cut off your mission support and you die. I can name a church over in Tennessee that some of you might recognize or not do that. But 20 years ago, they had a thriving church, a thriving mission budget. And then one day I got a report. I preached for the people back in those days and have since then. But I had to report that they'd had some trouble and the first thing they did after the trouble was to cut off their mission support. And when I heard that, I said, oh, that's tragic. That's tragic. And that's been 20 years ago, and that church has been struggling for 20 years. And I think the reason they've been struggling is because they cut off their mission support. God can't bless it. I say no missionaries, no mission program will dead the church. Then the final thing I mentioned, hyper-Calvinism will destroy and deaden the church. I don't know whether you mean what, know what I mean by the term hyper-Calvinism. Uh, most of you, I think, would recognize the term Calvinism. But there is a hyper-Calvinistic position. As a Baptist, I'm not a Calvinist. Uh, John Calvin is the founder of the Presbyterian Church. And as the founder of the Presbyterian Church, uh, he persecuted my father's and my people, and yours. And I could not honestly 
and sincerely call myself a Calvinist. Because, see, John Calvin, along with Martin Luther, hated it. John Swingley and even John Knox hated and persecuted Baptists in their day. John Knox and Calvin were contemporaries of the Presbyterian Church, but they persecuted uh, Baptists. Now, Calvinism holds to the idea of limited atonement. The Presbyterian Church in Elton believes in limited atonement. They also believe in pedo-baptism. That's infant baptism. Calvinism and pedo-baptism run hand in hand together. Now, as a Baptist, I don't believe in pedo-baptism. As a Baptist, I do not believe in limited atonement. As a Baptist, I do not believe in what they call irresistible grace. And so some of the things that Calvinism stands for, I do not accept. I do believe in the sovereignty of God, and I do believe in the total depravity of man. I would accept that, and I, as a matter of fact. But I could not go along with the high, with the limited atonement idea that Christ died only for the elect. Well, the Bible seems to be very clear that he died for the sinners of all the world, and that whosoever will can be saved. But I found churches that one time had a thriving work, and they bring in a pastor, and he begins to teach the hyper-Calvinistic limited atonement position. And I've watched those churches diminish and diminish and diminish and diminish and die. And so I'm concluded, I have concluded that hyper-Calvinism will kill the church. I don't care how strong it is, if it's preached fervently enough, It'll destroy that church. So I will not have any part with a hyper-Calvinist. No. We Baptists, don't you ever stoop to call yourself a Protestant. And don't you ever stoop to call yourself a Calvinist. You're neither. You're a Baptist. And a long time before Luther, who is the father of the Protestant Reformation, while Luther was still a Roman priest, my fathers were baptized in convert right back through the Dark Ages. Baptists did not come out of the Protestant Revelation. No, we've been doing business for God since the Apostles. And I, I reject the idea that I'm a Protestant. I'm not. I'm a Baptist. But you adopt the hyper-Calvinistic theology, and you watch the church go, I've seen schools die. I mean, Bible schools die because of a hyper-Calvinistic doctrine. It'll kill a church. That's why I warn you about it. Churches ought not to die, but churches die only when men allow them to do so. As long as a church, local church, will stay close to God, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. God forbid. Maranatha would ever diminish because of any of these things.